Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're in our series going through Philippians verse by verse, word by word on Sunday mornings. And we come almost to the end of the book. And we believe at Rocky Mount Baptist Church, uh, most all of our messages are... Uh, expository, and by that we explain this once every so often. You say, what in the world is expository, Jeff? This is what we hope to do with the majority of our messages. That whatever is taught from uh, from this, this pulpit, this stage, this church, we want the content to come from Scripture. Alright? That's why we, we, we do look at other verses, but we try to look at those verses in context of what we're reading. And here's the ultimate reason. If you guys come away from Sunday mornings saying that was a cool sermon, um, whether you think it's cool or not, um, that's, that's a sign that I and we have failed. But if you come away with understanding a passage of Scripture, what it means in context, it is from that that the Holy Spirit can draw the application to your life and your job and your family. So that's why we do what we do. Okay, just wanted to put that out there. That's kind of our philosophy of what we do. We do teaching through the Bible so that when you leave, it may not be with all of the bells and whistles, although we want God's Word um, to be powerful, and it is. We want you to come away with biblical content. Amen, church? Like that, that's what we want. If you can come away understanding God's Word, that's where it truly begins. But before we turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 10 through 13, I just want to express my gratefulness uh, to you as a church and so many of you as individual friends. And you have been so gracious and, uh, and giving me Christmas gifts and uh, even uh, clothes and candy and cookies and the whole nine yards. And uh, even someone left an anonymous gift of a Redskins cup on my uh, desk in there. So I appreciate that. And um, I love you all as a church. You're so giving. You're so generous. And I just really can't believe that it's almost 2013. Can I get a witness this morning? Amen. It's one of those times that you hit during the year and you... You have your birthday and your birth year mapped out and you say, okay, so 2013 means I'm going to be this old as compared to previous years. And I just want to say, man, I'm 32 and, uh, and so a older I get, it makes me want to serve the Lord more. Okay. 32 for some people is old. I know our students are like, dude, Jeff, you are so Old. I mean, you're teaching a Sunday school class. It's like, I mean, I've got a, I'm there in a nursing home. You know, and for some of you, you're like, you have not even stopped teething yet at 32, right? Like it's all relative. But at whatever age you are, whatever life stage you are this morning, I pray in this, this next year, 2013, which is just a couple of days left and, and the Mayans were wrong, alright? Or whether they, they read that wrong. So once again, good job making it through the apocalypse. It did not happen. But what we want to do this morning is look at a message that I think is very timely for our culture. And it is contentment and consumerism. Contentment in Jesus Christ versus materialism. Now let me define what that is. And this is in your outline if you want to follow along. Consumerism is, number one... The protection or promotion of the interests of consumers. Now that can be a good thing in a free economy. But number two, and this is the definition we're going to try to hone in on this morning. Number two is it is an often derogatory 
the preoccupation of society with the acquisition or the accumulation of consumer goods. Expressed by that age-old bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. And a better bumper sticker that should go on top of that one is that he who dies with the most toys, help me out, still dies. What does God's Word say, written 2,000 years ago, about things that we experience on a daily basis in 21st century American culture? Go with me to the Bible, Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to begin to read in verse 10 and go through verse 13. The Bible says, this is the Apostle Paul, he's in prison under house arrest giving this letter. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now let's just stop right here because this is somewhat of an awkward phrasing. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that he is in prison far away from the people that he's writing to. In that day and time, you could not get on, uh, this is going old school, get on a Greyhound bus, or you could not get on a plane, you could not get on a fast boat to get across the area that you needed to cross. So what happened is there was no communication. None. And then finally, the Philippians were able to get word to the Apostle Paul. And so instead of sitting back and pouting and sulking, he says, I am, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that your concern for me has been revived. So in other words, he's saying, I know that you guys cared about me. I know that I've been here in prison. You haven't heard from me. I haven't heard from you. But I know that you still cared for me. Stop. Word of application. Sometimes when you don't hear from certain people, if you have not gotten your self-esteem in line with Christ, your first conclusion will be that because the person has not called me, texted me, emailed me, called me on the phone, come over to the house in the last so often, that therefore they no longer like me, they no longer hate me. By the way, they hate me now. The Bible says that love always prefers that which is good. So in other words, we always give the benefit of the doubt. Amen, church? That means the first conclusion that you come to about another person should not be the worst conclusion about what they think about you. Hello. Once again, he's in prison. No word from the church that he planted. And then finally, after a long period of no contact, finally someone shows up. Notice what he doesn't do. Took you long enough. Some of you Sunday school teachers, deacons, or some of our former pastors, you go to visit somebody, you know, and it's like they went into the hospital today and you get there in the evening instead of saying, well, we're so glad someone from the church came. They say, what well, took you long enough? Right? Like, like that type of deal, you know, or, or, or maybe you go home, ladies, and, and, and you, you fix the meal, right? Like your husband gets home and he's just tired. He's like, when are we going to eat? It's almost ready, honey. You just got home from your job or from trying to, if you're a stay at home mom, corral children. You know, and you got sheep dogs to help do that, and the kids are running off, and you finally get it, and you lay it on the table, and he says, Took you long enough. And you ladies realize that you own a rolling pin. Amen. <laughs> right? You realize that you do own that. Or maybe you guys, you're out and you're trying to fight the world. You're doing as much as you can do to bring home the bacon, bring home the beef for your family. And then you get home and then the second you walk through the door, it is, and I'm going to get in trouble here, but we're just going to have to go along with it. Um, because tonight, if, never mind, I'm not going to say anything more about the football game. 
But you walk into the house and it is all of a sudden you are in trouble, guys, and you don't know what you did. And I am not going to ask for a show of hands today because you will get in trouble. Amen? There's actually some men who said amen. we got some courageous dudes in here. But it's one of those things, or, or, or on a more serious note, you were raised in a family to where you could never do good enough for your parents to truly approve of you. They did not give you godly affirmation. For example, son, I'm glad, I am proud in the game that you stuck with it. You guys got blown out, but you showed, watch this parents, you showed Christ character of perseverance, of determination in the face of overwhelming odds. I'm proud of what you did in the game, not the fact that you scored 20 points or not the fact that you gave up 20 points. We all on the same page here this morning? And if you came from a family that it was always you had to do these things in order to be accepted, when you come to Jesus Christ and when you become engrafted into a local church like this, a faith family, if you don't get with the Lord and truly get those issues worked out and give that to Him, you'll always be thinking that other people don't like you because you're seeing other people and other relationships through the lenses of the way that you think that your parents viewed you. We okay? Notice what the Apostle Paul, freed from the past, he says, I rejoiced that at length, at length, a long time, mucho grande tempo. Here he says, all of that, you revived your concern for me. The word here in the Greek, revived, means something coming to life again. Some of you are very good gardeners and we've got some farmers here and I think that is a gift from the Lord. And by the way, um, it's, I just, I've lived in um, big cities before and it's amazing to me how people in the city often will look down upon the people from the country, but if it weren't from the people farming in the country, the people in the city would starve. Is that common sense or is that common sense? You should thank a farmer. I don't even know how I got off on that. But it says here that you have revived your concern for me. The picture is a plant, something that is withered and something that is growing again. Now notice it says in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. Now stop. Where is he? Prison. Not Franklin County Rocky Mount Jail. Not the regional jail in Salem. Not some place in the U.S. to where you have rights. But he's in a Roman jail. Roman soldiers. Now wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to be a Roman soldier? Or maybe if you were saved, you'd hate it. And you would be chained to the Apostle Paul. Y'all awake this morning. Alright, you got the Apostle Paul, which he says, he says finally, this is funny, this is a little exegetical Bible study note. Uh, mark the first word there in verse number 8, it says, finally, brothers. And he doesn't end until verse 23. That is funny, and I don't care who you think you are. The Apostle Paul, from what we know, had the gift of being able to communicate, communicate a lot, communicate well. So here he is, he's in prison. He's got two guys who think he's an idiot because he believes that this Jewish carpenter was the son of the only God, and that he lived a perfect life, and he, the, after he was killed, he came back 
again. And they're like, this is the guy who believes that. You know, they're kind of looking over the Apostle Paul. Maybe they gave each other a high fives or maybe they made fun of him. But it's interesting that in the writings of Paul, you find within that first little generation of the church of Jesus Christ, at first an outcast group of Jewish uh, tax cheats, Matthew, crooked, crooked guy. Uh, you find... There was one who was a zealot who was kind of like a terrorist. They would carry around daggers in crowds and they would find Jews who were in league with the Roman and they would stab them or if you, they would shank them, alright? They, they would kill people who were not what they thought patriotic Jews. And then you take people like Simon Peter, a hot-headed fisherman. And then you find the writings of Paul that to, to greet those who are in Caesar's house. So here's what you see within the first century, within just a few years. The lowest ethnic group in that area, despised by the Romans, despised by other Gentiles. And then out of that ethnic group, the Jews, you had the lower class, the ones who were like Matthew. He was scum of the earth. He was a tax collector. People would spit and cross to the other side of the street when they saw these guys. But yet, those are the ones that God chose to be the apostles And in the first century, it had gone from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. Greet those who are in Caesar's household. That, my friends, is amazing. So he says he's in prison, and he says, not that I am being in need, but notice he says, for I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. I know how to be brought low. Verse 12. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Before we unpack the rest of this text, I want to give you three lies of consumerism. Three lies that our culture, our materialistic, greedy culture, tells us to believe. Number one... Consumerism is a produces band-aid purchases for emotional scars versus Christ who provides true healing. Here's what we're speaking of. If you are not where you should be with Christ, whenever you go through difficult circumstances, whenever you are reminded of the past that's not pretty, instead of going to Christ... For Him to heal you, you will go out and you will buy something that will make you feel better about yourself and your circumstance. Y'all okay? Ladies, if your worth is not in Christ, when someone makes you feel like you, they make you feel put down and lessened in value, you will go out and spend money that you may not have on something that you think increases your attractiveness and your value. Guys, if you're going through a difficult time, sometimes we call this a mid-life crisis. I don't even know if that's true. I have seen guys of all ages make financial decisions that are can't do anything but produce a crisis. And if you're not where you should be with Christ, in other words, if He is not the one who defines your self-worth, guys, you'll go out and buy something that you can't afford and that you don't necessarily need to try to make yourself appear like someone you're really not. But our culture tells us that if you buy this, if you... Never mind, scratch that. If you start making monthly payments on this... You see, they never tell you how much it costs. We're not going to backtrack to last year's 
four-week series on money, but they, they'll try to hook you in. And by the time we know it, we're paying off computers, we're paying off motorcycles, we're paying off CDs, we're paying off, I mean, you know, shoes or Tickle Me Elmo, I mean, whatever it is, we're paying off all of these things that we don't even need. But consumerism says, buy this and it will heal your wound. It is nothing more than a band-aid purchase for an emotional scar. Christ is the one who truly heals. Go back to chapter 2 with me. We're going to do a lot of review in these last couple of weeks. In verses chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we see beautiful, beautiful truths here. It says in verse 1, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, do nothing of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So the Bible's telling us that healing comes from Christ, not from purchases. Number two, consumerism teaches happiness via accumulation versus Christ who teaches joy via sacrifice. Here's what John Piper says, and I quote, the inner city kid and his friends are a stark portrayal of mainstream America minus the softening effects of wealth. Many mainstream Americans have an idolatrous faith in materialism, but it is tempered or it is softened by the opportunities that they have, either educationally or vocationally, to build their identities on something other than their appearance. We tracking with that? While they are two consumers, they have the opportunity to become more than mere consumers. By contrast, our inner city kid and his friends cannot or will not access such opportunities. Consequently, quote-unquote meaning gets hollowed out in their world and replaced by, quote, image. In this shrunken existence, kids literally kill each other for gold chains and leather jackets. The kid's blind fate in consumerism is fatal. You see, now Jeff, time out. Back when the starter jacket craze was going in the 90s, back when the Air Jordans were being stolen off of people, they were being shot and having their shoes taken, I didn't do that. Good. If you did, the Lord can forgive you. After you, after you do, some, do some time, you can get saved there in jail. But when I was a kid... Um, how many of y'all remember the Air Jordans? Or this, is this illustration totally... Okay, alright. Michael Jordan's shoes, okay? And for a minute, you guys were just looking at me. I was like, you guys do know what Air Jordans are, right? Okay. And so, uh, I, I wanted these shoes so bad. I was nine years old and I wasn't big enough to wear the Air Jordans. So the Sky Jordans cost $90. My parents said, we're not spending $90 on shoes. But, for your birthday, if you want to do chores and if you want to earn some money, we will pay half and that will be your birthday present and you can pay the other half and you can have your Sky Jordans. Well, guess what I got? Sky Jordans. I would wear my, I would wear my old shoes to the basketball game and I would change into like an OCD nine year old into my Air Jordans to play the game. And before I even got off the court, left the building, I would take off my Sky Jordans and put them in the box in which they came. And I know my parents were over there like, 
I don't know. We're, we're trying to homeschool. I don't, I don't, he's just, and what I, what I realized, and I would even take a, a pencil and go clean out the dirt from the, the, the bottom, the cleats after, like, it, it was so obsessive as a nine year old. And I would, I remember the first, I, we got him on a Friday or a Saturday and I walked into Sunday school and uh, I normally didn't sit like this and my other buddy wanted him and, uh, and I sat down and I did this. Just bring the leg up, right? Like if you've got cool kicks, if you've got killer boots, you know, Dumb and Dumber style, you want to show those bad boys off. So I brought my foot up and he's like, dude, you got Jordans. And I didn't tell him they were Sky Jordans, not Air Jordans. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and seriously, as a child, I, I experienced what it was like to be indoctrinated by a consumeristic, materialistic culture that tells you, if you buy this product, you will be happy. Now, there have been a lot of fads that have come across the U.S., right? We've had all sorts of fads where people would buy, I mentioned that a few minutes ago, pay exorbitant amounts of money for a Tickle Me Elmo doll. That's just wrong on so many different levels. It's a freaky red doll that says Tickle Me. I mean, just think about it. Don't think about it. Just it's one of those things that's that's just weird, and people you know pay a lot of money for this or that, and then five or ten years down the road, you don't even want your friends to know that you have it in your closet. Y'all okay? Right? It's one of those things, and we spend this money and we become consumed with the latest fad. Here's an article. Um, this is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the article is called "The American Cult of Consumerism." Here's what it says. Consumerism infantilizes us, alienates us from one another, and makes us apathetic as citizens. What's ironic is that even if you base human worth not on social responsibility, but on individual happiness, consumerism still fails us. What did you get Christmas 2009? Most of us don't know if you do, you know. Lord bless you. A consumer economy only works if consumption of goods provides only temporary pleasure. That is, if happiness is infinitely deferred so that buyers continue to buy more and more goods and services, by definition, the consumer can never be satisfied at rest or happy. Have you all experienced that this past year? Which means that she will always feel lacking. The pursuit of this sort creates this sort of happiness creates a vicious circle of growing anxiety and dissatisfaction. Perhaps what is most dismaying is that so many customers have become sophisticated enough to know that they're being manipulated, yet choose to remain passive. We are like the 30-something-year-old characters in Seinfeld who know they are immature, who know they are avoiding the responsibility of building meaningful relationships and of leading meaningful lives, and who don't really care. The reason is simple. The article concludes, we are for the most part comfortable. Don't buy the lie of the culture that tells you that if you get the latest and the greatest, then that will help you become happy. Christ teaches sacrifice and joy through that. Go back with me. We're going to do this very quickly. We're going to take a survey through the book of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 4. The Bible speaks of making all prayer with joy. Go to verse number 21. This is good. This is testing some of y'all's Bible drill skills. You guys remember that back in the day? Bible drill. All right. Verse number 21. The Bible says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, it's contrary to the culture. To give is to truly live. Verse number 25, chapter 1. The Bible says, 
convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. So in other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, I will stick it out with you. I will sacrifice because seeing you progress in your walk with Jesus Christ is worth more to me than me getting the latest stuff. Chapter 2 and verse 2, we read this a moment ago, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In verse 17 in chapter 2, the Bible says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoiced with you all. So in other words, right here, from the Bible, true joy, not happiness, comes from pouring your life out instead of trying to pour everything you can get in. Am I preaching or am I preaching this morning? You see, here, here's the way this shakes down. And we're going to stop right here. We come to church, we read the Bible, but when we look at our checkbook and how much we actually give, it says that you don't really think Jesus is a priority. And it happens all over the U.S. I will not belabor you with the statistics of people who are involved, involved, not just come once in a while, but involved in the gospel preaching, Jesus-loving church, but they don't ever give. Man, there is so much freedom. If you say, you say, hold on, Jeff, time out. I am in deep debt. The way you get out of debt is you follow God's word. He will bring you out of debt. You cannot get out of debt if you're disobedient to the basic things. If you begin to say, Lord, I'm going to, not out of a sense of legalism, not out of a sense of fear, I'm going to, this. I've never done this, nobody in my family's done it, they think that you, Jeff, you're, you're on drugs, that you say it, but I'm going to start tithing, tithing. Off the top, I'm going to start giving to the work of Christ through my local church. What you will find is that God will provide in miraculous and amazing ways. And every time you and I give, guess what it does? It puts another arrow, it puts another dagger into the heart of that greedy monster that manifests itself time and time again. And here's the way that we know that it happens. Whenever we see a sale for something that we want, we're like, awesome. It's only $349. I can swing that. Great, it's on sale for 100 instead of 150 But then when we hear things like give money to international missions, we're like, all the $20 bills in my wallet, I, I can't, they're, they're glued together. Y'all right? You know, if for some reason it seems like my motor skills start to break down when I write that check, it's just so, Jeff, it's so painful. I mean, I had to pop an ibuprofen after I wrote my first tithe check. That's how painful it was. What that shows is that our heart is in what we have here and not where it should be. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek ye first, help me out, church, the kingdom of whose? Of God and His righteousness. And and I love this. And all of these things, these things will be added unto you. Third lie. Consumerism generates unnecessary stress. I know I could get an amen all over the house this morning. Amen. (laughs) Consumerism generates unnecessary stress versus Christ who brings peace. You know, what our culture tells us is, is this, is you, you need to spend time getting things that make you happy. Now, now, I need to explain something. You say, Jeff, are you saying that that activities, that recreational activities are wrong and sinful? Is it wrong and sinful for me to go on a vacation for crying out loud? No, in fact, there's something that most of us don't do and we're disobedient in this area and it's sin. The Bible tells us to take a Sabbath. The Bible tells us to take a rest. Here's what we do. We work seven days a week, 95 hours a week, and we do that to save up for the future 
so that we can have a day in which we can rest. But by the time we get there, we're about ready to go inside the loony bin. And then, and then we're stressed out. Our blood pressure is up. We're having to take caffeine pills by the second just to stay awake. Does that seem weird to anybody? And often we disguise it this way. By the way, there is a fine line between being a workaholic and being a lazy man. Amen? It's a fine line between those two. We should work as much as we can for the glory of God, but if it comes to the point where it's damaging your marriage and your friendship with people and you don't have any life other than work, you need to reevaluate. Here's what God's Word tells us to do, and it's to take a Sabbath. Did you know that you can be very obedient to God by just taking time to rest and enjoy what God has given you? You see, our culture tells us you've got to go, 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 be productive, be productive. And in some sense, that's true because you need to earn money to bring home. But there is a line to which it goes over into workaholism. This is what the Bible says. If you're taking notes, jot this down. This is a killer verse. I had it glued on the steering wheel of my 92 Jeep Cherokee for years. This verse, this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. And the Bible says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The world tells you, not only should you not emphasize the things of Christ, don't go to church because you lose money when you go there. Y'all with me this morning? Like, uh, unless you're a crook trying to, you know, make change in the offering plate or whether, you know, you know you're a redneck if you make change in the offering plate or trying to steal, you know, you, you lose. It don't, don't do that. It's, but the Bible says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Is that news for us? Or is it something that we just choose to ignore? Let me read that again. For we, I, you, brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving or this desire, this lust to become rich, that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You know what I see just as a young preacher? There's so much that I don't know. And every time I learn something once in a while, I say, Lord, I am I'm ignorant. But I have noticed this that there are men and women all across the United States that are piercing themselves through with sorrows in their pursuit to try to gain a certain level of financial, quote-unquote, stability. And what's happening is it is wrecking marriages, it is wrecking friendships, and people end up so stressed out. Here's what happens. We accumulate this stuff, don't we? And then it stresses us out because we've got to keep it up. Amen? Now, you would think after a few years, after getting all this stuff, that the stuff would give us happiness. But what happens is it pulls more of our energy and our devotion away instead of giving us happiness at all. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. You see, we fight each other over stuff, don't we? Parents, Christmas... Kids have the new toy there. What happens? Unless it's a one, you know, 
something that the kid can only play with by his, his silver. It, they begin to argue over it. They begin to complain over it. I, I have to confess this. Um, how many of y'all went to, a, to Black Friday this past year? Okay. Some of y'all don't want to admit it, and you totally went. You totally went. And that's fine. Um, and those of you who know I, I enjoy, you know, um, shooting sports and whatnot. And I was in, in Greenville, South Carolina, and I was staying with my folks, and I saw an ad out of Academy uh, Sporting Goods. And for, I mean, it was a ridiculous price. It was a 44 Magnum, you know, Dirty Harry, those powerful handgun, the world thing. I was like, man, I can join the, the Dirty Harry Club for a little over 200 bucks. That is awesome. So I went to one store, and, and it took long. It was a midnight opening. I, 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 this has been on my heart. I need to confess this and get it off, you know, just be, be honest with my church here. And so uh, so I went to this midnight opening, you know, to, to get something else. And, and it took like, I mean, two hours to get through, and it was 2 a.m. And I said, well, the other one, they open at 5 a.m. So I'm going to do something I've never, ne- never decided to do before. And I've always said was insane. I went out there with the crazies. Okay. And so I went there. No, jo- no joke. It was like 2 a.m. after I left. Uh, the, I think it was Dick Sporting Goods or something like that. And then I said, well, they don't open for a couple hours. I'm just going to go to Target. So, so I, I go to Target and they've got police officers all over the place. I'm like, what? It, who, who, you know, who mobs Target? And so everything was gone. I ended up buying like a pair of long johns for two bucks. And when I was checking out, when I was checking out, the lady kind of looked at me and I know what she was wanting to say. She was wanting to say, sir, here's your sign. <laughs> you are up at two, three o'clock in the morning buying long johns for two dollars. Sir, you need to get a life. Thank you for shopping at Target. Like, I knew that's what she wanted to say, but something about customer satisfaction maybe really overrided that. So I'm there, and, uh, and, and then I go pull up in the parking lot, and I say, well, you know, and then people started getting, they were, they were already there. They're like statues sitting out on these chairs, you know, bundled up, and it was cold. And so I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and sit there because I'm not going to stay up all night and be last in line to, to join the Dirty Harry Club. And so uh, I go there and I sit down and I, I think like, Jeff, what are you doing? But I had had to go 30 minutes back to my parents. And I said, I'm, I'm going to stick it out, you know. Sleep is for sissies and all these other things I was telling myself. It's just now I see it was insane. But then there's this lady who comes, there's a couple of ladies who come and sit down and they begin to talk and one of them says, you look cold. And they brought a blanket. And she said, we've got some room over here if you want to use this blanket. <laughs> and my first thought was my ankles are cold, but no, no. Thank you, but no. I mean, could y'all see that on our local newspaper? Preacher caught. Greenville, South Carolina, 3.30 a.m., in front of Academy Sporting Goods, snuggling with two women he doesn't even know, right? Like, like what in the world? I was like, no, ma'am, I appreciate it. But I thought about that, and my brother showed up. I said, Jeff, you just bought hook, line, and sinker into the materialistic culture that says if you do these things and if you hold out and if you get up early to get stuff that you ultimately don't really even need. That's what we just read. He says, with food and clothes, we should be content. You see, that's the gospel. And I pray that in this next year, the Lord needs to free some of you from materialism. He needs to help me with not going back and being materialistic to the next Black Friday. So I need to be accountable with some of you for that. The Bible says, the Apostle Paul, back in uh, chapter 4, he says, I have learned in verse 11... In whatever situation I am to be content, you said, Jeff, you've got to define contentment for me because I've been thinking, what is it? Here's, here's what it is. It means literally in the Greek, the word is 
autocrace, auto, self. It means to be content or self-sufficient. You say, now hold on. Jeff, you say you're almost through the sermon, but that almost sounds like a stoic. Being a self-made man, a self-made woman, digging down and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not what it means in this context. Here's what Kenneth Weiss, a great Greek scholar, says. He says, Paul's independence was not stoic independence, but dependence upon Christ. Check this out. He found his sufficiency in Christ. Paul was independent of circumstances because he was dependent on Christ. We connecting this morning because he was dependent upon Christ. He didn't have to be determined by his situation. That's why he says, you know what? Feast or famine. He says, I am Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a great little book. You can pick it up for nothing on Amazon. It's called Five Who Changed the World. Subtitle, What Will You Do With Your Life? It's by Danny Aiken, who is the president at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. It's a story about Adoniram Judson. That's a pretty, that is a manly name if I've ever heard one. Adoniram Judson. Awesome. Missionary. He went to what is today known as Myanmar, what some of us still know as Burma. And in an overwhelmingly hostile Buddhist country, he went to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And during the course of that, a war broke out between the Burmese people, the government, and the British government that was trying to impose their will on the people. Adoniram was captured as a prisoner of war, even though he was not fighting for the British, and he was put in a horrific prison camp. Finally, after that, his wife, she had a child. She was not able to nurse the child because she was so emaciated from a disease that she was suffering with. She was allowed to come see him once in a while, but she had no source of support. She actually went in a, the village that they lived and she would hold out her child to the Burmese mothers asking them to nurse the child because she wasn't strong enough to do it on her own. Finally, Adoniram, after being released from prison and he had to wear 14-pound shackles on his ankles and on his wrists. And biographers say that he wore the scars from that till the very day that he died. He received a letter when he was separated from his wife. And the deliverer said this in the letter, My dear sir, to one who has suffered so much and with such exemplary fortitude, there needs but little preface to tell a tale of distress. It was cruel indeed to torture you with doubt and suspense to sum up the unhappy tidings in a few words. Mrs. Judson is no more. Guys, imagine God calls you to take the gospel to a hostile country. Your wife says, I'll go with you. He says, if God calls us, we're going. Not only does she go with you, but she rejects the offers of being able to go home when you're in prison. She comes and she sees you every day, bringing you what little food that she can find. She helps your new little daughter to survive by letting the other mothers in the village nurse the child. A woman of steel, a Proverbs 31 woman who says, I will, as the old country song says, ladies, stand by my man. Even if it's in Burma, even if he's being tortured in prison, I'm going to go, even if they threaten to throw me in. And here he is, he receives the news that his wife has died. And not soon after that, six months later, his little daughter Maria slipped into eternity as well. Now this is interesting for some of us who think that Christianity is all a bed of roses. 
Biographers say that death seemed to be all about in Adoniram. For a period of months, he was plunged into despair and depression. He would flee to the jungle. One of the greatest missionaries at that time that had ever walked the face of the earth. He would flee into the jungles, men. And he would live the life of a hermit for sometimes questioning himself, his calling, even his faith. He demanded that all of his letters to America be destroyed. He even denounced his doctorate degree in divinity that Brown University had given to him. He gave all of his private wealth. He actually had a good bit of money back here to the Baptist Mission Board. And he even requested a cut in salary, which was already minuscule because he was a missionary. He dug a grave near his little hermit shack that he was living in in his depression. And for days sat beside it staring into it. And on October 24th, 1829, on the third anniversary of his wife's death, it says... He says, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in Him, but I find Him not. And the biographer says, however, God's power and love did not fail Him. He would emerge from the valley of the shadow of death and the strength of His good shepherd. And later, Adoniram would look back at seeing his wife and his daughter slip into eternity and him left all alone. Here is what he wrote, men. He said, quote, There is a love that never fails. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. It is in that context and it is in the context of what the Bible says in Philippians 4.13. It's not just so that you can get a first down. It's not so that you can make this month's rent. But it's so the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. No matter what you face, Jesus Christ can help you be an overcomer. That means that you can face being backstabbed by a friend and not become a bitter person. It means that you can face financial difficulty and not still be consumed by materialism. It means literally that you can do whatever Christ's power can do. And if Christ's power can raise Him from the dead, then that means that nothing, y'all with me? Nothing that you ever face as a follower of Jesus Christ can raise its ugly head and say, no, you can't. Because we say the power of Christ in me is my hope of glory. I can. You can. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength.